Welcome to the Readings Podcast. My name is Amanda Rayner, and it is a pleasure to be speaking today to author of eight novels and the 2017 Stella Prize winner, Heather Rose. We're going to talk today about a new book, Bruni, published by Alan and Unwin. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Hello, Amanda. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> well, I was very excited when I I got the opportunity to talk to you. I actually asked, can I talk to her? And they said, yes. So. It's so fantastic. And for our listeners, Amanda was the first person to give the Museum of Modern Love a really beautiful, glowing review. So I'm indebted to you. Thank you so much. Well, that's very sweet of you to say that, but I just called it like I saw it. So it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And Amanda and I got to meet because I was so touched by this review that I, you know, I live in Hobart and I was in Melbourne one day and I thought, I'm going to go up to readings and say thank you to that woman in person. <laughs> and that was when we got to meet, which was so great. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And coincidentally, we are both from Tasmania. I have not lived there for 17 years, but... Um... Once a Tasmanian, always a Tasmanian, <laughs> Amanda. So the first thing I wanted to do was congratulate you on the 2017 Stella Prize winner for your beautiful book, Museum of Modern Love. Um the Stella Prize is such a wonderful prize. Um, I believe it, they started talking about it in 2011 and then the very first prize was given out in 2013. Um, it's just such a wonderful prize on the um, award calendar. And um, how significant was that for you Look, to win that? it was huge. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely huge. I mean, it gave me a career as an author outside of Tasmania yeah. uh, because until then as you as you know I had a very loyal following of readers in Tasmania but that's a very small reading <laughs> group which is uh, you know never easy as an author but it certainly was enough encouragement to keep going which was fantastic however all a read a writer really wants is an audience yes you know? yes and the Stella Prize put the book in the hands of so many people nationally. And then, of course, it caused this flow-on effect internationally. So yes. the book was sold and has been translated into a number of different languages. It's It has been launched in the US. It's come out in the UK and in a very strange collection of other countries, actually. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and many of them using the same cover, which has been fascinating. The cover is beautiful, mm, yes. Beautiful. Sandy Carl, brilliant, yes. <laughs> who also did the cover of Bruni. Oh, wow. But the, the Stella Prize... You know, the money is extraordinary yes. because on the back yes. of – I got an Australia Council grant for Bruni just yes. before the Stella Prize. And so with those two and then the incredible Christina Stead Prize, that gave me enough money to keep writing full-time for the first time in my life. And, oh, Amanda, the difference that made to being able to sit down every day and work on Bruni and the feeling of – utter freedom with my characters, being able to do the research when it applied, not months later when I finally had to go look something up. The way it informed this book was extraordinary. And I think the Stella also, beyond the prize money and the extraordinary acknowledgement, it gives so many women writers in it, Australia, yep. both on the long lists, the short lists. The education program is so inspiring. Isn't it? Isn't you know, it? Going into schools seeing that young women now consider women writers to be just as likely to be very good at what they do as male writers, that there doesn't even seem to be a gender acknowledgement. You know, you're no, just a writer. You're just a writer. Which is so beautiful. 
And then, of course, the media balance, getting the reviews, the review pages at some kind of balance other than in the Australian. Yep. But some kind of better balance is happen- has happened now as a result of that watchful eye that the the Stella has placed on the media with the Stella account. And they are an extraordinary group of people. The, the sponsors are extraordinary. You know, uh, three or four of the Stella sponsors came to New York for the Museum oh, of Modern amazing. Love oh, when it was launched wonderful. at MoMA. Yeah. So they have been remarkable. It's it's such a beautiful family of people to be involved with. Well, I noticed you had acknowledged them in your book and um, we're a great fan of the Stella Prize. We especially love that it, um, I mean, you did win for a fiction book, but I think it's great that it's open to both fiction and non-fiction. And as a sort of a segue mm-hmm. <laughs> into talking about Bruni, um, I just wanted to uh, read out for the listeners one of my favourite reviews of Bruni by Bree Lee. Now, Bree Lee was on the long list this year for Eggshell Skull, which is a biography, an amazing book, if anyone hasn't read it yet. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone must read it. Every woman in Australia, but every man as well. Essential yeah. reading. Yeah, very, 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 very strong biography, Biography that one. And um, her quote, which I just love, is, um, Bruni is a fantastic political thriller. I no longer work in a bookstore, but if I did, I'd tell people this is the perfect summer read. Page-turner, explosions, intrigue, affairs and betrayal and a touch of romance. It's like an intelligent blockbuster. And I have to tell you, when I finished the book, I put it down and went blockbuster. That's how I felt about it. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. But, but definite, definitely intelligent. So, um, yeah, so that's a fantastic um, recommendation there from Bree, who is a wonderful writer herself. Absolutely. So now to, from the Museum of Modern Love, I read that that took you, I don't know if it's right to say it took you 11 years Mm -hmm. to write or was written over an 11-year period? Yes, it was written over an 11-year period because I wrote The River Wife and the three children's books under the Angelica Banks name in that period of time, but I kept coming back to that book and it was so hard. It was so hard. And partly it was hard because I didn't get devoted time to it. And there was a lot, as you know, there was a lot in that book in terms of research, just having to understand the landscape of art history. You know, such a huge topic and yet one I had to feel fluent in, in order for it to feel effortless for the reader. Yeah. So there was so much cramming of information, the history of women in art. I'd never, ever... Uh, ever studied musical composition. I don't play a musical instrument. I had to do so much research into film composition. Wow. All sorts of things that were (laughs) way above my pay grade. So there was an enormous amount I had to learn, but also structurally, as you might remember, I I wrote the book as a sort of with Marina as a fictional character yes. for the first five years, and then once I sat with her in New York at the, during the artist is present, mm-hmm. I realised I couldn't possibly fictionalise her. She was too no. magnetic and she was too too powerful, and what was going on there was too powerful to fictionalise. Yeah. No, nothing in my imagination could have made that more evocative than it was. Yeah, so. Yeah. 
uh, then it changed. And so it went through many different forms of being, you know, a number of first person voices through to third person back to a sort of first person narrator that gives the illusion of third person. <laughs> there, were, there were so many aspects to writing that book. But my, it got done. And, you know, who would have thought that a book about a a Serbian performance artist and a depressed musician would become a bestseller. <laughs> well, it did, deservedly so. Um, so with you've sort of explained part of it by explaining that um, with the funding you were able to work sort of more full time. But where did the beginnings of Bruni sort of start in relation to the Museum of Modern Love? Like was it... Um, because 2017 was a big year for you. <laughs> mm, it was a big year, wasn't it? So were flutterings of the idea sort of happening? Yes, yep. definitely. So I think it was probably in about 2015, I was walking my beach at home and I often go for a walk in the afternoon and there was a beautiful cloud bank at the end of the Derwent River between North Bruny and a point called Tinderbox. And between those two points, there's a huge channel of water called the Dontricasto Channel, as you will remember. And there was a spear of light that made it look like there was an enormous bridge between those two land masses. And I thought, ooh, why would there be a bridge there? And what would happen if there was a bridge? What would be going on in Tasmania if there was a bridge? And almost instantly, Astrid turned up as a character. And I, I have very vivid characters that are like a movie playing in my mind. And there was Astrid at Hobart Airport being met by a much smaller woman, but uh, obviously related. This woman seemed to be very well known by those people at the baggage carousel. And then I followed them home and they were having a lunch, a family lunch. And I thought, oh, I know you people, you're the Coleman's. Because years ago when I was 21 and I was living in Melbourne, I was doing a course at TAFE in professional writing. It was a one-year course. And one of the subjects that we did was short story writing and every month we had to do a different one and I think this must have been the topic of family. And I wanted to try and capture what it's like to live in a family or be part of a family that is very polite on the surface and well-meaning and kind, but underneath there's all this stuff that's not said and cannot be expressed, A lot of a lot of tension and you know, stories that nobody dares to mention. So I wanted to try and convey that at this dinner table, but I realised I was too young and I didn't know how to do it. And as you can imagine, a story like that is pretty much all dialogue. And at that stage, I knew I wasn't good at that. So I put it aside, but every 10 years or so, <laughs> I'd see them oh, sitting really? at the table. Right. And I think, isn't that funny that I can't forget those people? So when I got home this time, and there they all were, I felt at last as if I could convey what they were like. Mm -hmm. So I felt really at home with them instantly, and I think that gave the novel a sense of pace and a sense of character development that it was almost effortless, that part. I, I, I know people say they're very rich characters for them and they're very vivid, but they were so vivid for me. I, you know, they really have been with me for over 30 years. Well, we're going to talk about the Astrid fan club later. <laughs> <laughs> she does deserve a fan club, doesn't she? Yes. But <laughs> we have it at readings. Um, we just love her. Um, so before we go any further, we should probably outline sort of a couple of things about the book. I'm so pleased you said uh, 
that thing about envisaging the bridge because mm. I had heard that, but I wanted it to sort of come from you. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way where it can just come from Heather because she would describe it so much better than me. So I'm glad. <laughs> great, <laughs> great. It's sort of a way of asking how, how you got your idea without asking how you got your idea. So <laughs> Yes. And so isn't it beautiful that such a simple inquiry, the what if? Yes. You know, for writers I think it's such a powerful mechanism. What if? Yes. Mm. Which which is very much what your book is. Mm. It's like um so it's set sometime in the future. We've had a lot of discussions. What is wonderful about this book now is a lot of people at work have read it. Three of my family rem- members from Tasmania have read it. And I'm having the best time talking about it and discussing it and, um, you know, and, and just sort of trying to sort of agree on some things and then realising that other things are probably just up in the air and, you know, to be just... I'm so delighted you've said that <laughs> because if there was one thing I wanted from this book, it was better conversations. Oh. Let's have really good, strong but kind conversations yes. about the kind of values and the expectations we have for the future. Yeah, my my dad, who's lived in Tasmania most of his life, I know ha- has really enjoyed this book but has really feeling a personal connection to it and he's just been reading lines out, out of it to me and, um, yeah, so it's, it's, just, it's just wonderful that, yeah, I've just been able to have discussions with all these people about it. Um, I'm delighted so- <laughs> by that. I'm so thrilled. Yay, mission accomplished. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. I thought there's no way that this people are going to just put this book down and not want to speak to anyone. Um, I was sort of like a, a child waiting for Christmas when I, because I very luckily got to read it sort of in June, July. And I just, I wanted everyone to read it. And I sort of was just saying to my family, I was saying, um, you know, you have to read this. And my dad and his partner actually had tickets to your, um, at Fuller's, your Fuller's. Oh, yes. yes. And unfortunately, um, one of the two was ill and they couldn't go. So I thought, right. And they were going away. And um, not to take away from Fuller's sales, because I'm sure Fuller's is doing really well on this I, book. <laughs> I think they, they are planning to make it their bestseller ever. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I think they would be loving you at the moment. Um, so what I did is I, I knew they were going away, so I bought them two copies of the book so they could read it at the same time. Oh, I love your idea. <laughs> Isn't that gorgeous? I, it's such a beautiful image, both people reading the same book. And they said, no, no, we can. And I said, no, trust me. <laughs> I said, you will want to read this at the same time so that when you've finished it and they've now both finished it, you can talk about it. I said, it's going to be agony for one of you to read it and wait for the other to read it. So they had their own little sort of book club. So <laughs> fantastic. Isn't that gorgeous? Where did they go? Um, so they've just been going around. I think they're in Mildura at the moment. So Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Just- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So um, I have been skipping all over my notes here, but we're having fun, so that's the main thing. So um, so back to the premise, it's set sometime in the future. So we, we've sort of been talking, you know, when do we think? And we feel like it's somewhere, because you have these lovely little um, hints throughout mm, about mm. things that are happening worldwide, we're sort of thinking, you know, maybe five to ten years, something like that. Not Not... 
The nearish future. The nearish future. Yeah. But it's been a very strange book, as you know, because yes. I wrote it, you know, I started making notes and getting a sense of the characters in 2015. Then 2016 was very busy in a number of ways and I didn't get very much writing done. But I did put in a submission to the Australia Council for this, uh, which made me have to write, you know, the first chapter or whatever it was that I submitted. And I got the money to write a whole first draft. So, I wrote the first draft in 2017, I did the second, and this book actually had only two or three solid drafts uh, before it went into production. So the it was finished by the end of 2018, but in 2019 all these <laughs> things started happening that are already in the book, which yes. has been quite unsettling. And wow. I imagined it was about 2022 because of the election cycle, but the you know the we have an isolationist us president in his second term who's just withdrawn from the middle east yeah and we've got turkey in the book having given a thoroughfare to a renewed caliphate yeah and we're watching that unfold right now so there are things about it that are a bit disturbing like that Amanda. yeah i i, I imagine so i imagine mm. so so yes nearish future Maybe nearer than we think in some Maybe some nearer than we think. And as you say, not that that has very much to do with this story at all. No. In fact, it just gives us a sense that there's a, a wider world at a level of chaos that's yes. slightly more than the chaos we're seeing right yes. now. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. So we haven't even really given like a overview of the plot yet. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we should just All briefly right, let's do that. Do that. Okay. Would you like to do that? I always uh, like the the author to do that. So, All right. So uh, as you know, Astrid Coleman shows up at the airport in Hobart because she's been brought home by her brother, who is the Premier of Tasmania, John Coleman. But the sister that collects her from the airport is Maxine Coleman, and she's the leader of the opposition. So it's a satire. It started out as a satire. It was always intended to be a satire. And in fact, it was only once it was finished and went to my agent and publisher that they said it's a much more serious book than just a satire, Heather. And so the Colemans are this political family, the bridge this enormous bridge between mainland Tasmania and Bruny Island has just been bombed. It's been four years under construction. It's had a world of opposition. The Tasmanian people are very suspicious because they do not feel that this bridge, what the government is saying about it, is everything that's going on. And as you know, Tasmanians are very good at protesting. So, <laughs> so there's been an, a world of protest the bridge itself is of national and local significance. It's been funded by uh, the government and also by the Chinese government. The steel is coming in from China. And people are saying, why, why, why is this enormous bridge of such significance nationally and locally? So that's the mystery that starts Yes. yes. But then, of course, it unfolds into all sorts of other mysteries. Yes, which, I mean... Um, I, I'm certainly not going to give any away. I mean, you wrote it, so you can do what you want. But, um, yeah, there are just some amazing twists in it. Um, it was just, so much fun to write, like that, I have to tell you, because for me, I'm a seat-of-the-pants writer, so I get my first <laughs> idea, as in, you know, saw the bridge, thought the what-if scenario, and then I have to find my way to the end. Uh, about three months in, I usually see the end scene, yep. and then I have to somehow find my way 
in my imagination with these characters, watching these characters. So the twists and turns were as much a revelation to me as they are to the reader. It woke me up at night. It just made me laugh out loud. It was such an entertaining book to write. When I got to what probably is – because there's two twists that come very quickly Mm. after each other – and I was reading it at home, and when I got to the first one, I just had to go, had to put it down and go, oh, oh, oh I can't cope, I can't cope. And I was walking around my house, <laughs> like, for about three minutes before I could go back. And <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean. I had to, too, just so you know. I was like, no, no. <laughs> and one of the um, my fellow colleagues at work said he did exactly the same thing. He was pacing around the house. Dad, when he read that part, he said, oh, I've just read the oh my gosh part and he said, I'm just needing a little while to just take it all in. So it's a, it's a, it's just a ripper of a twist and um, yeah, so um, we certainly wouldn't want to give that away but um, it's wonderful for that respect. Um, Now, and just with the bridge too, because the bridge is um, six lanes, isn't it? Yes, it's a six-lane bridge. It's a a slightly scaled-down version of the Golden Gate Bridge in terms of specifications for those engineers who will read it. And it's cost a couple of billion. Two billion dollars, that's right. Yes. And that was what was great when I was uh, talking to people about the sort of concept. They said, but why would you do that? And I said, well... I guess that's the mystery. So. That's right. That's when you have to read the book. That's right. <laughs> so it's really great in that you have people already sort of questioning. Mm. That doesn't really make sense. Mm. Why? So mm. so that was wonderful. And I did love it. The Premier of Tasmania launched this book back in Hobart a couple of weeks ago, which in itself was very funny. And uh, one of the first things he started with, which just brought the house down, you know, was he said, and I want you all to know that I've had this bridge costed by Treasury and they think they could do it for half the price. <laughs> I think a billion would be fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I imagine, oh, I just imagine there's been so much discussion down in Tasmania about that. So, Well, there um, was an editorial a couple of days after the launch of the book in Tasmania. There was a whole editorial in the Mercury saying that the Liberal Party ought to use this book for government strategy because whilst it was fiction, it's also reality. Yeah. So I think that might be a first for a novel, at least wow. in my experience, wow. being used to inform strategy and policy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yes, I thought it was pretty staggering too. <laughs> now, one of the things you discussed earlier that I'd like to go back to is one of the main questions that when we've been discussing people you talked about um, the satire that you mm. originally intended as a satire and some people have been using the term political thriller. I mean, that prologue is just like, I was like, wow, she's written a thriller. This is like <laughs> amazing. Um, where would you, because I've had some people come up to me and say, how seriously am I supposed to be taking this? And And I said, well, I guess that's up to you. I guess it's up to you how you in, interpret it. I mean, I I sort of have interpreted it as a political thriller, definitely with satirical and ironic sort of elements. I mean, is are you happy for people to interpret it sort of any way or did you? 
Look, I did intend it as a satire, satire right. and, uh, and a cautionary tale in that regard. Yes, yes definitely a cautionary yeah. tale. But someone said uh, recently that it was absolutely hilarious and deadly serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I quite like that. I yes. think that's what I meant. It's yes. absolutely hilarious and deadly serious. And yes. I I think when I urge people to have conversations after this, it's about the deadly seriousness Serious of it because yeah. so much of this novel is accurate and factually actu- accurate. So much of what is in there was highly researched. I did many interviews with very high-profile people and very well-informed people about foreign investment in this mm. country, about um, the role of government, people who'd sat in COAG meetings, people who are on the Foreign Investment Review Board, um, ex-Brigadier Generals, you name it, I interviewed them. <laughs> so there's a lot of data in the book that is completely solid. And yes, of course, there's a scenario that is utterly fictional, but a number of people have thought reading the book that it's not that far from the truth. Yes, yes. I had the first person I gave it to um, at work, he said to me a number of times, he said, but this could happen. And I said, yeah, I think that's part of why she's written it. So That's yeah. right. Yeah. I did. It was definitely in the world. A little role Dalish, I think, of <laughs> cautionary tale. <laughs> well, I mean, I think a lot of people that I've talked to, you said you really had fun sort of mm, writing it. Mm. And I think a lot of people had have sort of read the first, you know, sort of 150 pages and say, this is a blast. This is wonderful. This is great. And they're really sort of getting the satire. And then I think, you know, once it continues, then the seriousness sort of yes, that settles in. Yes, I think that's in. true, isn't it? And that seems to be my experience of people reading it. Although, let me say that I actually intended the end to be truly satirical, but <laughs> I, I think by then a lot of people are more worried that it's more truthful. So, yeah. <laughs> but I do love that people are, are enjoying the humour of it. And I found men are really loving the humour of it. This is what I want to talk to you about, because I don't want to simplify gender, but this book is out of the um, five people that I know that have read it, four of them are men, and they love this book. They love Astrid, which I think is wonderful. They love her as a character. They really, really do. I did not expect that, Amanda. <laughs> I did not. She's a pretty feisty woman. Yeah, no, <laughs> she has a lot of opinions about men. <laughs> and um, and I just thought that that was wonderful because um, – you know, obviously there are, again, you know, not just to simplify it to men and, and women, of course, there's other ways uh, people identify gender, but obviously Museum of Modern Love was perhaps more geared towards the female sort of audience, although I know men who've enjoyed that as well. But I feel like this book has just really opened up your readership Have you, and, and you've obviously noticed, noticed I've that. I've noticed it because yeah. I keep getting messages on social media from men telling me how much they laughed and that hasn't happened to me very much. I mean, I, I agree, I've had uh, some really great male readers for Museum of Modern Love and a lot of men have been very thoughtful after reading it. Yes. I think it's that they have noticed Arky as a character and as a male kind of, you know, being that maybe they need to think a little bit more carefully about how they are in the world from yes. it. And, and it's a little bit uncomfortable for them. 
But they also, lots of men who are artists have read the book, of course, and, of course, and loved yes. it and, and been inspired by it. That that was pr- probably the, the most touching thing for me was all the men who wrote and said, you know, I, I haven't painted for 20 years, but I've started painting again. Oh, wow. You know, my wife gave me the novel and, yeah, some really, really beautiful feedback. And for that alone, I would have written it, you know. <laughs> and and now I'm getting, yes, all the fun, all the fun. <laughs> you just made me laugh and I've been laughing out loud for days at your book. And- yeah, no, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, hearing comments, but especially, you know, like my brother, um, Unfortunately, I didn't have time to talk to him last night, but he just wrote, um, I told him I was talking to you today and he just wrote, good luck. He said, the book was amazing. So, you know, just everyone's loving it. So I'm so um, thrilled. (laughs) I'm so thrilled. I mean, you never know. I I was telling my agent, you know, after Museum of Modern Love, you know, what do you think you'll work on next, Heather? And I said, well, actually, I've started this satire set in Tasmania about the Tasmanian government, about the Australian government. And she just (laughs) eye-rolled. Really? (laughs) I saw... I saw initially I was a, I was a little like wow this is completely different and um, you know the word brave has been used a lot mm, to describe it and many I, I times think, and I think that's very apt and I mean it's a very subjective book um, but um, oh I've gone blank for a little little moment on what I was that's going right, we'll to say pause the podcast here <laughs> um, so ab- about. Oh gosh, what were we talking about? The brave, the braveness the of it. Braves. Yes, and um, I r- remembered back to your acceptance speech of the Stella Prize, and I remember thinking, oh, she's got a bit of fire in her, this lady. And so I wasn't so surprised when I rem- when I remembered going back to that, and I thought I can see where you know that sort of came from to bring out Bruni. So. I um yeah I was initially like wow this is really different and then I thought no I think it's just another facet of Heather. I think that's really interesting Amanda because <laughs> I remember one of uh, someone wrote a beautiful piece I think it was in the Age uh, about the Stella Prize speech and she said something she described me as steely oh you know <laughs> among other things but I thought oh that's interesting and I think you can't underestimate the the effect a prize like the Stella with the heritage of the Stella, the heritage of women and writing in Australia, the way that we have been underpublished. Yes. The way our lives have been dominated by domesticity, our stories have largely gone untold. And then to have a character like Astrid turn up who's very unfiltered in the way she expresses her thoughts and feelings that was so much fun and there was something about it I noticed towards the end as her story was told and, and everything started to get quieter in my mind again. There was a feeling as if she had been like a fire inside me that had come out and she'd formed into Astrid Coleman and there was something very beautiful about being beyond her as well, feeling like, wow, if this is the if this was the last book I wrote, I'm really glad oh, I wrote this book. That's wonderful. Because it felt like a great message for women, a way of sharing what it is to be women. And I loved that about it. And I loved that about her coming along, that she just gave me such a, a rare opportunity to share what it's like to be a 56-year-old woman in the world, having lived a big life, been a mum of two kids, got divorced, 
comes to a big, you know, technically a small challenge for Astrid. Yes. Coming home to Tasmania, thinking that Tasmania has been so well preserved all these years. She's been away on the world stage working for the UN and instead the world has totally come to Tasmania and, in fact, it's almost at the forefront of a new world order. Yes. And when she discovers that and how she responds to that, yeah, I really loved her. (laughs) (laughs) As I said, there is an Astrid fan club at Readings and we love her because we believe her. We believe her intelligence. We believe... um, you know, she talks about the decades that she spent with the UN and, um, you know, doing all this sort of conflict resolution stuff that she's been brought in to do. And um, we, she's just such a wonderful character that you really, really believe in. And, um, you know, we just wondered, a few people at work were saying, you know, could we perhaps have a, an Astrid Mission series or something like oh, that? Oh, <laughs> you're not the first people to say, could we have another book with Astrid? And I, I hadn't thought about that. And I was like, wow, it'd be interesting to go somewhere else with her, wouldn't it? She, she'd yeah. be a great friend to go travelling with. <laughs> I mean, we're sort of half-joking, but we're not really. Like yeah, yes, <laughs> I got that. And, and someone suggested that Edward and Astrid... Oh, could yes. do something together yes. again because they're a pretty interesting team. They are. He's not the love interest to the no, listeners, no. by the way. He's a, a colleague. Yes, yes. No, no. Loved, loved her, loved her. Um, we're unfortunately getting near the end of the discussion time, which I'm very sad about, but all things have to end at some point. Um, we do have a final question that we traditionally like to ask at the end of the podcasts. And that is, um, is there something in particular that you're reading or have just read that um, you have liked and want to sort of share to the listeners? Absolutely. The book I would love everyone to read is Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. It's an extraordinary essay that uh, is a whole arc of thinking. So it begins with the familiar and then it moves into the unfamiliar. So he takes us from really the genesis of our world as the algorithms of uh, apps and social media and all those things have started to come into play in our lives and the algorithms that run our traffic systems and all our computers and all of that. And then he takes us all the way forward into the an extrapolation of that and what the world might look like if we were to continue down this pathway and that's a cautionary tale, if ever I heard one. Yeah, his his books are very popular he's at readings. So brilliant, isn't yeah, he? What yeah. a big brain he's got! But that one, I thought, I I love Sapiens too, and I love Twenty One Lessons. Homo Deus, I think we all need to know what we're getting ourselves into, and we're seeing that more and more with uh, you know the documentary, the the great hack about Cambridge Analytica. I couldn't help but think of Homo Deus when I was watching that. You know we are facing in the world the hugest challenge to democracy that we've ever known because we cannot hold a free and fair election while ever Facebook and every other social media platform can just populate our feed with completely um, false allegations against candidates. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is unfortunately something we haven't had time to talk about, but the way you talk about um, sort of protesting and how protesting has the history of protesting in Tasmania, but how um, it has changed within this particular book 
and um, it's very scary to and sort of. And we just of, passed know, those laws in yeah. the in the federal parliament two years two weeks ago. The ones that are in Bruni that I put there in twenty sixteen mm. or something are now passed in the federal parliament, and we're watching these you know challenges that Queensland government saying no, you know we we won't accept protest. We're going to limit protest by doing A, B, C, and D. You know, we live in a democracy where sometimes protest is the only way we can get change. And when we're living in a climate emergency, to think that people are going to be shut down rather oh. than the industries that yes. are the yes. problem. Mm. Yes, it's, it's something that to link with Australia is very hard for me to comprehend that mm. we are sort of limiting speech. And free the world speech stage, in that way. The, the Hong Kong yes. situation. Yes, we live in uh, a time where it's very important we all understand that democracy is a very fragile construct in the short term. It's very robust in the long term, but yeah. in the short term it can be terribly fragile and we need to be better informed about that. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful note to end on. Um, thank you very much for being here. You're doing a tour around Australia at the moment and I know you've been very busy and we're just thrilled that you took the time to come and speak to us. Um, so I just have to do my little formal wrap-up. Um, uh, Amanda, can I say it's been delightful <laughs> and thank you and thank you to all the readings readers because, wow, what wonderful readers you've been of my work. So thank you so much. Oh, that's our pleasure. That's our pleasure. So you have been listening to Heather Rose discuss her exciting new book, Bruni, which is currently available from all reading stores. Um, you can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current music, book and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thanks again, Heather, and thanks for listening. Thank you, Amanda. 